Hello and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. Lovely to see you. Yeah, great to see you again. We've had some amazing uh, guests uh, recently um, with a primary background and tonight is no exception and we're delighted to welcome Kieran Mackle. Welcome to our show, Kieran. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, Emma assures me that you and Chris Such are the ant and deck of primary education. So, now we had Chris on recently, so which one's which? I don't watch enough TV to know. (laughs) (laughs) Emma, you must have a sense of that. Um, Yeah, I think it's because um, I listen to uh, Kieran's podcast quite a lot and he's on with Chris quite a lot and it's just... They are the, the greatest compliment, the greatest double acts. Obviously, Kieran's background is in maths and Chris is so heavily into sort of reading and writing, but they are like the ultimate primary duo. They are like kind of the primary edgy celebs of, uh, of literacy and maths, which is which is why I like them to Anton Deck. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of people will know about you because you're, you've got a sort of specialism in maths and you've written a, a, a book. I know Emma's going to ask you about that. But also the, th- the way I know you most is because of thinking deeply about primary education and which sometimes gets this uh, quite cool sounding uh, acronym like do you call it like TADAPE or uh, how do you say it? Oh, that, that's exactly right Lloyd Williams Jones came up with that he said it, it should sound almost as if it's from the Iberian Peninsula so TADAPE. TADAPE. <laughs> TADAPE. But it's fantastic I mean and you've got this whole I mean you've, you've had some amazing guests on there so just give just give people a, a, an idea, kind of what's your background, where are you currently working, and you know why do you come to be doing this podcast about primary education? Yeah, so I've been teaching in England since well, maybe two thousand and eight, and bit by bit, my sort of professional development got funneled towards mathematics. I was lucky enough two thousand and ten to start a, a course that I don't think exists anymore, but it was a primary mathematics specialism, and it was over two years. We did some action research and really explored the the fundamentals of, of maths pedagogy and it was it was sort of you know a, a watershed moment for me and um, and from that I became a, a specialist leader of education you know and um, you know obviously you're talking about people who may not be from England but essentially your role was to go into schools and support middle leaders with your expertise was lucky enough to go to China before, you know 2014 with the NCTL which was a, a sort of government body who were exploring transferable practices and I think potentially along, you know, since then, we've sort of seen the introduction of maths hubs, things like that. And um, at the moment, I'm lucky enough that I oversee and sort of lead a collaboration of three schools. Now, they're not federated or in a trust with each other, but they did identify a need to raise aspirations and outcomes for in mathematics for their communities. And so for the last five years, I've been supporting teachers in those three schools in their professional development, you know, so essentially someone in-house to look at the small manageable steps that take you from novice or relative novice to towards expertise and you know the aim is that at the end of the five years or I'm essentially redundant because the the practice is so good and you know we we are reaching that point had we not had the pandemic I think I may have been redundant a lot uh, a lot sooner (laughs) (laughs) you've got to work yourself out of a job Kieran that's a set of circumstances like Mary Poppins, my work here is done. The wind is having me to go. <laughs> I, th- I think that's what you want. You want it so that, you know, when my support gets removed, 
the quality of teaching is so embedded and the expectations for mathematics teaching are, are so embedded that it doesn't matter, you know? So it's almost getting over your ego. You know, I'm the one that makes the difference here. And really it's the teachers and the fact that they're doing a fantastic job day in, day out. And, you know, our, our children are getting a, a really good deal every single every single day. And in, in terms of the podcast, I think it was during the October lockdown of 2020. And I was struggling to find something to do with my time. I'd, I'd finished thinking deeply about primary mathematics during the big first lockdown. And so I was like, well, I'm not allowed to write another book. My wife said I couldn't um, do another <laughs> one before the kids had grown up. And so I, I messaged Lloyd Williams Jones and said, well, shall we try a podcast? You know, because we've got similar interests. We want to be evidence sort of guided, evidence informed. Um, and we've got a lot to say about, uh, about primary education. And, and from there, people like Christopher and Shannon and Neil, they gave me a chance and said, oh, yeah, we'll try that. And we, we had six, seven episodes of just friends talking about education. Um, and from there, other people sort of connected. And we've almost got this little micro um, micro system where lots of people with similar interests have gone beyond the Twitter sphere, so to speak, and are now engaging with them, the conversations. And so most of the episodes at the moment come through our Discord. And so people will say, oh, I'd really love to hear about them, about moderation in writing. And so we did one of those episodes and I think it was really well received. But it, essentially, it started as something to do whenever there wasn't much to do. Um, but actually, it, it's, it's become, um, you know, it's, it's, it's grown a life of its own. And, and really, you know, the aim is to go for 20 years and do something like 998 episodes. But, what, you know, we're only in year two at the moment. <laughs> I love it. I love the ambition. But I mean, I just, so I was listening to a podcast with you talking to Chris Such, and I think this is what's good about it, is that it's sort of, you really just sort of give yourselves the time to get stuck in. And now you're talking about um, maths facts, details like which order of uh, times tables is the best order to teach. And, you know, it's it just, it, it's so detailed. And I was thinking, this is great. I mean, I love, to me, I just think this is excellent. Like, it's, it's quite unusual because often people think, well, you know, people know this stuff already or, oh, you know, is it patronising to talk about the basics? But it just so isn't. And then you are sort of talking about, you know, uh, revision, you know, retrieval techniques and the power of knowing some stuff off by heart. And I just thought it was so, so interesting, you know, like, and, and you mentioned in there something about there being 37 facts. <laughs> So I was thinking, now I, I I just totally interested, that just got me. I thought, I want to know what those are, like what sorts of things are included in that level of like recallable facts that you're talking about there? I think it's easier to define them by what's not included. So for instance, um, if we accept that multiplication is commutative, well, you don't need to learn three times six and six times three. So you immediately have the number of facts that you have to commit to memory. The 11s, aside from 11 times 11 and 12 times 11, you can pretty much discount those two. And then the 10s, children quite naturally learn to, you know, quite early on skip counting 10s. So I wouldn't necessarily spend too much time with those. The fives have a pretty easy pattern. So really you get down to, you know, the, it's reflected in the multiplication check. 75% of the questions are from the threes, the fours, the eights, the sevens, the nines, you know, the ones that are just more difficult to remember and have less of a pattern in some instances. And so instead of saying to teachers, right, we need to learn every single fact, let's make it really manageable and really clear. And 
focus on the ones that children traditionally struggle with because you know what's this year 14 and I'm still having the same conversations about facts that I was when I when I was an NQT or an early career teacher and and so yeah it's it's about I think can we help and the the less experienced teachers really um, get to the bottom of this because if we do then I think we said in the podcast year five and year six you know the the final years of primary school are, are so much more enjoyable because you can explore fractions in the depth that it's really meant to be explored. Oh, Kieran, you're talking my language because my background is primary maths as well. And I was a strategy baby. The primary national strategy came in the year I started teaching. And I ended up similar sort of role to you. I was a strategy consultant for, for our region. And everything that you're saying, we were saying, you know, in sort of the early 2000s, because what's missing, I feel, from a lot of teacher education, especially from primary is this bit, it's, there's that thing in the teacher standards that says have a really good understanding of the teaching of early maths, but nobody teaches teachers how to teach early maths. And it's things like, you say, knowing what order to teach number facts in, knowing that if you want to learn your sevens, if you know your fives and your twos, you know your sevens, but nobody, nobody teaches that. And that's why I love this book. And if you are in primary or in, or you teach secondary or you're teaching children, who've got gaps in their knowledge or who don't necessarily haven't grasped those basics. Your book, Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics, is the best thing I've read in maths in 20-odd years. And that cupboard behind me, most of it is just early maths books, but that is by far and away the most beautiful thing I've seen. I can't praise it highly enough. It's absolutely brilliant. So how did you go about pulling all that together in one book? That's what I want to know. With with my books, they tend to be me recording the conversations I've been having over an extended period of time. And so having been a maths leader since 2010, I think I was when I became maths lead first time, and then having refined my craft over time, there was a place I felt for a book that explained things in the, the level of detail that I had been with my colleagues because I'd spent a lot of time with inexperienced teachers thinking about, well, what is it you really need to know or what is it you really need to do next? You know, I think walkthroughs was released around the time I was writing the book. And I thought initially, oh, no, my book's in big trouble here because, you know, Tom and Oliver are going to have it uh, completely sewn up. And but then when I saw that, um, you know, the two could actually marry well quite to get, you know, could marry well because mine was much more specialised in terms of this is about specifically about mathematics. Um, but it's, it, I think the principles are, are the same. You know, it's take big ideas, break them down into smaller parts and then get better at those smaller parts. You know, I think it was the teacher gap I read. And I saw Becky Allen talking about um, CPD at the Teacher Development Forum a couple of years ago, maybe 2017. Um, and yeah, really, it was a case of getting those conversations that I've been having with teachers for a long time into somewhere that other teachers who don't work at our schools could could sort of access them it's, it's the it's the level of detail you go into with all the diagrams and the pictures of the manipulatives, manipulatives and the actual setting out present it like this show it like this say this do that nobody ever tells teachers how to do that so it's it's such a rich resource and i particularly enjoy the fact 
that all of your resources were all the same all the way through. As in, that's a real big bugbear of mine, teaching early maths, that you don't use Dean's on Monday, Numicon on Tuesday, double-sided counts on Wednesday, 100 square on Thursday. I love the fact you've got that continuity in the manipulatives and the representations that you use. I absolutely love it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Having a little geek out here, Tom. No, it's great. I, this is, I think this is, this is exactly it. And I, I, I'm fascinated because I'm, I'm someone who I taught um, A-level. My first teaching job, I taught A-level maths. And um, my last teaching job, <laughs> I taught year seven, sort of lowish set maths. And, and year 10, sort of middle set maths. And I would say... I felt like if you mapped my trajectory from those two points, it was downhill. Like, um, and so this sometimes I have this. This one of the things I, I have a real sort of be in my bonnet about at the moment is that is that this notion of teachers getting better at teaching. And I and I feel like it's not even the right way to describe it. It's more like you were you work out how to solve some specific problems that you're currently faced with, and. In my later teaching career, I was faced with much harder problems for me to solve than early on because the children I was teaching didn't have some pretty foundational ideas about maths and numbers. So I'm really interested in, like, what do you think? Because there's this thing like number facts and multiplication tables. That's one thing. For me, the two – but those weren't even the things that I found I, I found students found hardest. One of them was simple uh, number line sort of – that, that intuition that, say, um, thir- six and seven add up to 13 because I can partition the six into threes and we go seven, three, three. That kind of facility with number line was, for me, the thing I just thought, why well, they couldn't visualise, like, this just sequences of numbers and placing them. So they talk about, say, eight and six as if they were words rather than having something with a scale. And... So they were trying to remember what to do to add and then sometimes counting up on their fingers. And they're thinking, like, are you still counting up in your fingers, but you're 14 years old? And it's it, to me, that to me was much bigger an issue than remembering, say, eight times eight times six. I mean, does that resonate with you? That's That was my experience. Yeah, definitely. I think where I stand changes the more I sort of spend time with pupils, the more I read. You know, there, there's a definite correlation between our internal number line and our ability to apply to, to sort of work mathematically, you know, um, and whether it's a it's a case of causation, I'm not sure, because in in my schools, my recommendation is that we focus our attention on giving pupils the options that they have. You know, one of my big things is that we don't actually need to teach the formal written algorithm for addition and subtraction before key stage two because there are sufficient mental methods that will that will benefit pupils in terms of efficacy or efficiency and accuracy. And, and so, you know, Emma was talking about the national strategies. There was a book that was published alongside that called Teaching Children to Calculate Mentally. And I think unless you're given the opportunity, you know, whether that be at home through a mathematically rich upbringing or in school through your teachers, given access to here are your options, I don't think you develop those. And then I think you suffer in mathematics further down the line because. Oh, clear. And <laughs> this is so beautiful. This is music to my ears. Now, this is a really geeky thing that I had to do when, when I was in um, the strategy consultancy, is we had to analyze the old mental papers and the written papers. And we analyzed uh, literally thousands of them. 
And what we found was that you couldn't get an old style level four, national curriculum level four, unless you scored a particular level on the mental paper. And it wasn't necessarily that you scored more points on the mental paper, but it was such an indication of that fluency and that ability to think mathematically. Because if you could do it in your head, then you've got all those things about understanding which method was most efficient to pick. What was the kind of the relative proximity of the numbers to each other, which made you make that decision about that particular calculation strategy? And I am absolutely furious at the moment with the way that maths is being taught in so many schools in that we have this rush to formal pencil and paper kind of procedural driven algorithms rather than really developing that deep conceptual understanding of early maths, which is the number line thing that Tom was talking about, as in if you don't understand how the number system works and you don't have that toolkit of mental strategies to pick from, then you automatically default to the last strategy you were taught, which is the written algorithm, which is often inefficient and doesn't benefit you in terms of thinking mathematically, because all you do is then follow a recipe in a series of instructions rather than thinking, right, what do I know about these two numbers? What's the relationship between the two of them or three of them? What's the best way to deal with these? I honestly leapt out my seat when you said, please don't teach formal algorithms before year, before key stage two. Absolutely. And I think that the I think the false pushing down of written methods into key stage one and, and to some degree early key stage two is just robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, you just because it ends up in the year six, that doesn't necessarily mean that you teach it earlier on. Sorry, slight rant there. <laughs> Do you want to just go on a bit more about that, Emma? Because that was you're just working yourself up there. <laughs> 20, I mean, twenty years of hurt coming out. It's like thirty years of hurt with footballs coming over. Like twenty years of hurt. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. So for people who might not know, like, you know, because I mean, we, we I think generally people outside of primary education uh, are here about the phonics debate, which goes on because that's something which gets in the public domain and you get, um, you know, people kind of talking about reading and so on, even without knowing much about it, but they still have a view. But maths education doesn't seem to have the same sort of public discourse around it because the the, the debate isn't formulated through, you know, phonics, good or bad kind of thing. So is there an equivalent thing about this sort of maths sort of issues? I know there's some debates later on in in secondary education around things like the kind of Joe Bowler school of maths education where it's got a real world problems and that type of thing. But is, is this debate around early, you know, over formalizing too soon a, a big issue? I think it's an issue which isn't necessarily caused by pedagogical decisions on either side. You know, there are no there are no sides, but where there's a lack of experience and expertise, like Emma says, you default to the formal algorithm because in the in the national curriculum sort of requirements, it mentions this, the addition and subtraction of two two-digit numbers. It doesn't say at key stage one that you have to use the written algorithm, but because perhaps knowledge of the mental methods might not be there, then we find ourselves in a position where that becomes the the default. You know, at key stage two, you know, so in a final year primary school, when you are given a a two mark question and you're allowed to have one 
mark for a correct method. That method is the is the formal algorithm. So that perhaps drives a lot of the thinking as well. But I think almost on it needs to be on a national scale uh, and awareness beyond those people with an interest in mathematics and mathematics teaching that there are better options out there. You know, so you know, talk about me and Chris being a good double act. He and I explored some of the alternatives on on our YouTube channel. And sort of said, oh, this is what we might do in this situation. Like you said, you know, when is it best to make 10? You know, are these numbers close enough that you can do subtraction by addition rather than having to sort of count on and count back? And, you know, I think anything that moves pupils away from a count all strategy, which is almost like your, your red flag in terms of a lack of, you know, sort of numerosity, um, is, is, a, is a step forward for the profession. But I, I don't think it's a, it's not a, a debate amongst practitioners, but it's just where we find ourselves at the moment, you know, so correct me if I'm wrong, Emma. <laughs> no, I, th- I think you're right, but I think it's because no systemized it in the way that phonics was systemized. And to me, not number fat knowledge and, um, and kind of strategy knowledge, as in what strategy you would choose to use, should be systemized like phonics. It should be taught as a body of knowledge that all children should know. So when they were looking at addition, they should know um, counting on, they should know bridging, they should know partitioning, they should know compensation, they should know near doubles, they should know all of those strategies and, and be taught to think, okay, which of these strategies is best for those numbers? But because it's not taught as a body of knowledge like a phonic body of knowledge, then Everybody kind of teaches it in their own in their own way, and, and so um, it gets those messages get lost. And for, I don't know whether you feel the same, Kieran. When I teach maths, I t- I give as much time and emphasis to lessons where we look at the choosing of an efficient strategy than I as I do to practicing a strategy. So you know, rather than giving children a sheet full of addition calculations, you give them a sheet full of addition calculations, and you say only solve the ones that you could use compensation for or only solve the ones where it's a near doubles question so that you're making them effective problem solvers where they're thinking about it. And I think because that's not taught and because it's not prescribed anywhere or set out anywhere, it doesn't work like that. But I think it should be. I think it should be taught like phonics in stages, gradually and incrementally developing to be this body of mathematical knowledge but i may be at odds with you karen now <laughs> no not at all i mean it's baked into the curricula that we use in my schools um, and so we've taken it directly from the singaporean curriculum and so you will find that our children aren't taught the former written algorithm until very late in in year two if at all and we focus on the mathematical ideas but with numbers which are manageable for the pupils so in, we we essentially cycle back with num- numbers to 10 initially then the next layer is the same ideas but with numbers to 20 then the same ideas with numbers to 40 and they may get to numbers to 100 but there's no rush because really what we're doing is we're, we're saying this is what we prioritized you know and i think one of my more left field um ideas is that i, I would have less autonomy on a on a curricular level if we could ensure the level of um, consistency that you're describing there. You know, if we, if we, for instance, took a national curriculum that didn't necessarily have too much in it and prioritized what's important in, in early mathematics, 
and we said this is the content to be taught, then we may see bigger gains going forward. But like I said, I know that's not the the majority position amongst my peers. I I agree with it, though, because what is the point of having an overstuffed curriculum that children can't do anything with it? And uh, that bit about the, the part of the number system that you work within is, again, a conversation that doesn't happen. So if you just learnt um, numbers up to 20, why would you do problem solving with numbers up to 20? You do your problem solving with numbers up to 10, that bit that you've really understood efficiently in you. You know, you've got fluency with it and, you know, you, you absolutely know it's this. But what we, what a lot of teachers do is they like, introduction to decimals, we're going to introduce this whole new section of the number system and we're going to get you to solve a problem with it at the same time. It's utter madness. So one of the things that I always advocate is you calculate with the part of the number system that you're fluent in whilst you're still exploring the next bit of the number system. And it all comes back to this idea of kind of cognitive load and the idea of automaticity and fluency and th- things that you can actually draw upon. But at the moment, I don't think primary maths is sequenced or thought about deeply enough in such a way as to kind of thinking at the planning, st- at the curriculum design stage. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, when when you're talking there, I'm thinking about math, mathematical maturation, you know, something I heard Mark McCord talk about in his book, Teaching for Mastery. And it's something that's fascinating because it's about, well, when do we find that sort of ideal point? You know, a fantastic read and, and you know, uh, seminal in terms of mathematics pedagogy. And um, it was very hard not to just take Mark's book whenever I was writing my own. And <laughs> just just scribble his name out on the front. <laughs> Kieran, I agree, Kieran Mackle. <laughs> I've done that, yeah. I could have lost Witcher in lockdown or something like that. Don't anybody else. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's 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 definitely a conversation about to have to be had about when we introduce problems of and what is and um, you know what's an appropriate level of challenge and where does that content come from you know because like you say if, if you're learning to multiply two fractions and then you're solving problems with those straight away you know I think you know the the overload you know I don't think you'd overestimate it and um, you know to your example if you're being taught about decimals in the same year that you're getting to grips with four digit numbers I think that's perhaps too soon you know I think give give space because once you've got four digits you know it's very hard as humans to imagine numbers greater than a thousand you know the example I always give is that 10,000 years feels just as far away as a thousand years so but so once you've got that you can just look at the pattern because we don't really understand anymore and so once that's down you can then go into decimalization and look at the relationship with fractions and and uh, and sort of go deeper, you know. But I, I do think it takes time. We don't need to to rush it. It's so interesting that thing you say about about the about the number size because I saw a thing recently and it, trying to get place value. And it was, it was one of those things where I thought, is this just is this, is there just too much going on here? So what do you think about this? So it was a sort of big number grid on the carpet, uh, labelled thousands, hundreds, tens, units, and then they, they were using like cube counters to put the put them physically in the books and i was thinking i'm pretty good at maths and i don't think i've ever needed to see like seven thousand or seven thousand cubes to me it's just like really overwhelming like i get it's big and it's a lot but now we've got seven thousand cubes there and like 300 cubes in here so i'm sort of getting the relative size but i I was feeling like it was sort of mind-blowing for the so and then they have to do subtraction i was thinking 
their minds are already blown with just how many cubes are on this thing and the scale of the numbers and that. And now we're doing subtraction. And I was thinking, this is this is like year two or three. It sort of, it felt too, like, I don't know. Like, you're, for what you're saying, like those numbers are, are slightly too unwieldy, probably, for the children to really be properly manipulating them at that point. I think I took it from Richard Dawkins. I think there's a bit in the selfish gene where he talks about how we find it really difficult to understand evolution and the scale of evolution because of how long it takes and that humans really work within their lifespan. So I'm 30, 35, 35 years is about all I can really imagine. And I just sort of extrapolated it out. You know, did they actually have 7,000 cubes? Because there's a Hungarian mathematician, uh, Zoltán Dinesh, and his base 10 equipment is more than sufficient for showing the relative magnitude of um, of sort of numbers that primary school pupils will work with. And I think once you get to the thousand block, which is a thousand ones or, you know, you know um, I think once you get to that point, there's not enough space in class. There they are there. Um, and I think at that point, it becomes a pattern. You know, for, so for me, I would use that material when I'm looking at magnitude. And then if I wanted to move pupils to the manipulation of larger numbers, I would use place value counters because at that stage you can more easily mimic the process that's in your head. And so you're sort of almost using your hands to sort of move the, the counters around. But it's not understanding the relative size of those numbers relative that, to zero. That, that is the best explanation of that. That is that's brilliant because that's exactly what was going on. They were trying to, and that, so you've just articulated what I was thinking, which is they were dealing with magnitude at the same time as to work out operationally how to subtract, um, and it was too big. And they literally had seven of those cute ten by ten by tens in the box. And I was thinking, oh, my mind is blown. Like, I don't think of seven thousand visually in that way often enough. And when I do it, I have to think about it. And now I'm now going to subtract. So you that 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 makes a lot of sense to me. But isn't that interesting? So one thing that I come across when I visit primary schools is how often when you ask people about their, their maths, they don't talk like you're talking. They talk like we use the white rose scheme or we're following complete mathematics or we've got this stuff based on the Singaporean system and people offload it to another place and that, and they don't feel like it's their program they're delivering. It's like the the system we've bought in that we're implementing. I come across that all the time. So it shows you there's a kind of and and some of the people who would have written those systems, I think, would sometimes be a bit turning in their grave about how it's being used because that's not what we meant, you know. But they're not there to say it. And do you come across that? Do you think this sort of scheme implementation thing is problematic sometimes? I get asked quite a lot which scheme people should use. And I, I'm, you know, because I'm not sponsored by anybody, I in, in direct messages, I will I'll give my advice. But the main thing I come back to is that whatever you have in place, you need to have thought long and hard about why you've chosen it. Because ultimately, how mathematics teaching is enacted in your classes and how your pupils experience mathematics will be driven pedagogically by the model that the that the, the person who's written the scheme. Has, has desired you know so i think where, where there's no where there isn't enough time or where time isn't given to thinking through exactly why you would want to do something i think that's where you might find you know that uh, a, a dislocation from from what's being done in classes and and what the the overall aim is and 
And I think in, in thinking deeply about primary mathematics too, and it was Christopher Such who pushed me on this bit, because he initially wasn't that keen on high quality textbooks. And he gave me some examples of when they'd gone wrong. And it's the examples he gave me were examples that show the importance of the CPD that goes alongside it. So for instance, my schools have had the benefit of having someone with relative expertise modeling how they would use it. So I sure show this is what I would do in this situation. This is how I would use the book. Here are the fundamentals of the use of high quality textbooks, you know, because that's that body of knowledge doesn't exist, you know, because whenever I started teaching, the word textbook was a dirty word, especially in primary, you know, despite you know, some of the, the highest performing education systems utilizing, you know, Finland included, you know, it was the Soviet style um, pedagogy and the use of high quality textbooks in the 80s and 90s that got them to where they were in the in the early thousands. And and so, you know, I've, I've almost lost my train of thought because I was about to go off in a conversation about, uh, about Finland there. But um, yeah, I think the, the CPD is, is really important and, and sort of, you know, if you have a vision for what you want mathematics to be, it's about choosing the right tool for the job and then giving your teachers the support they need to utilize that tool. Because, you know, it could be a very expensive mistake because there's very little difference between the high quality and low quality offerings out there, you know, in, in terms of price. And the t if, if you spend, you know, two years on a cycle where you go round, you try something, you change it, you try something, you change it, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. You need to see seven years through. And then you'll really, you know, this year's year one pupils, were they when they finish year six, you know, and, and that's when you'll know if your decisions are, are sort of bearing fruit, so to speak. I think it's also the default scheme in, in maths in primary is partly due to um, teach confidence as well. There are so, such low levels of teach confidence within the teaching of maths. I mean, all the studies by Haylock over the years have shown that it, and there's a guilt associated with not understanding it, not being able to do it. And the more qualified you are, the more guilty you feel. And um, because a lot of adults aren't necessarily particularly fluent in maths themselves, then when it comes to the teaching of it, it can be really hard. And so the default to the scheme a lot of the time is because there isn't, like Chris has said, um, and you said, Kieran, about the CPD that goes alongside it. You really need to understand as a staff body why you teach that method or why you teach that approach or what um, decisions you want children to be making as young mathematicians. If that hasn't happened, there is no scheme that is going to rescue you and there's no textbook that is going to do it for you because it's all of the teaching in the moment kind of AFL type decisions that you're making to support the learning that really matter. And I think everybody's looking for a textbook or a scheme to be a silver bullet. And it really isn't. It should just be something that you use alongside your own professional knowledge. But a lot of the time that isn't there for, for a number of reasons, partly because of the length of training for primary teachers for a start, where you've got to learn how to teach 12 subjects in nine months, potentially. Um, and then the offer that isn't, there isn't that parity in, like you get with phonics, like you get with literacy. There isn't that CPD parity with maths. And that's why the textbooks get seen as the silver bullet when they're very much far from that. I don't know whether that's what, what you think as well, Kieran. I mean, yeah, I think the only silver bullet is giving yourself four or five years to slowly, incrementally improve the quality of math teaching. You know, for instance, if you in one year as a, as a staff body decide to get really good at using the 10 frame, 
you know, I think that would go a lot further than trying to get better at everything at the same time. So it, it takes bravery on the part of the school's most senior leaders, and it takes patience on the time of the on the side of the subject leader. You know, for instance, seeing subject leadership as a role that's worthy of five years of your time, because sometimes it can be a stepping stone to, you know, sort of supposedly greater and better things. You know, so I think the approach you know people like matt swain where they really have broken down what they see is important in mathematics you know their their mastery model of schooling you're probably the closest thing i've seen to the one that mark talks about and in a primary in a primary level and saying okay this year we're going to get good at the following few things and then next year we'll have those plus some more i think that's that's the only way to really get over the sort of issues that you outline, because I, I completely agree. I think confidence um, plays a big role, you know, because mathematics, you know, like I said, you know, I'm sure this conversation is quite tired, but, you know, people will often say they're not good at maths, but they'll never admit to illiteracy. Um, and so it's it's almost like overcoming a cultural um, sort of effect at the same time as empowering our, our teachers. I, I've come across that so often, you know, when I do training of, Group, large groups of teachers and you know you so you're peppering your cpd with question types and uh you know the old maths question people hate it <laughs> suddenly but there are some things which i find fascinatingly kind of hard for people to compute quickly like if i say to you what's a quarter plus a third you think you'd be able to work that out quickly but there's actually quite a few steps and you think people are almost almost like baffled by why it's not an immediate answer they're going oh my god what is it quarter plus a third and they realise they've got to turn them into twelfths. So it's like you're kidding me. I actually have to do it. <laughs> in twelfths, they're going, "Oh my god, yeah, I do." And they're going, "Oh," uh, and it comes to like seven twelfths. But it's sort of, it's sort of, and then they're surprised that it's bigger than a half. And they're going, "But of course, it's bigger than a half." But they're not expecting that, so they, they're double checking. And it's like, it's interesting. So this the maths does have had this sort of, and this is one of the things I think about textbooks is that it's the question choices, the selection, which I think is very specialised. And a good textbook will allow will, will have good question practice questions, which are well structured and sequenced with variation and stuff, nice incremental gradient. And if you're winging it, you do that really badly. You 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 pick questions that are suddenly too hard, and you're not you don't even notice it yourself. And then the student, the children are struggling, and then you realise it's a really bad question. And, and I used to find this really fascinating with things like. You know, it's like the it's like the question that one of like if it takes a man, you know, four days to dig a hole, how many holes can two men dig in eight? And it's like everyone's going, oh my god, you've made it too hard. You haven't stepped it up neatly. You've just made it sort of. You've introduced all these variables, and it's because you're not seeing the progression. So yeah, I mean, I, I think we could, we could <laughs> love you. You two could geek out about maths textbooks all night. <laughs> it's probably we probably could actually. Yeah. Let's, we, we, we're going to run out of time. Can I ask you that just what else? What's coming up then on on on? I'm going to say it. Tadape. What's coming up soon on Tadape? Thinking deeply about primary education. What have we got? I mean, I think the next time we'll have sort of interviews, you know, just like the one that you know you, Tom Oliver and Shannon took part in, will be the start of the next academic year because they take quite a lot of organization and editing, you know, maybe four or five times more than uh, the than the sort of chats that we have on a 
on a Tuesday night or Wednesday night. But um, like I said, people have requested. So we've got, uh, we're going to look at comparative judgment because we explored rarity moderation a few weeks ago. We're going to look at comparative judgment curriculum in small schools and whether the expectations are sort of manageable for small schools as much as they are for sort of large multi-academy trusts, you know, really drill down into the expectations for teachers. Um, but essentially, we're going to focus on matters of pedagogy and policy that that interest us, you know. So we had a new white paper today, and I think tomorrow night we're going to, or Wednesday night, we're going to have a look at, uh, at what we think. And that'll just be a really informal chat about our opinions because we've got, what, eight years until that has to come to fruition. So <laughs> we've got plenty of time to, you know, sort of throw our ideas into the ring. Kieran, I'm just going to say about your um, podcast so i know that it's it's badged as a primary podcast but some of your episodes are so cross-sector um that i think potentially some people are missing out on some absolute gems that one you've done recently about communication with amy bills and um, chris and um gosh what's the chap's name i want to say william that's my Lloyd. brother William's my brother's name. Um, that session there, that, that episode there was amazing. And I, I listened to it out on a walk and I'm so annoyed with myself because I didn't have a pen and paper to actually take some, to take some notes. But if I know it's badged as primary, but I would urge anybody who's working in any part of the sector to listen into those sessions because they're absolutely brilliant. Um, the primary ones obviously give a lens into what's actually happening in other faces, um, faces within the sector. But the generic ones are brilliant. So don't miss out on listening to some quality conversation just because it's badged as primary. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. So what I have to call it thinking deeply about education, which would be to pay. And that would be a whole other thing. I'll <laughs> 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 well, find another acronym. But I said, lastly, it's I just to be honest, it's it's I just think it's a real honor to, to talk and listen to someone who's so wise and knowledgeable about about an area of, of education as much as you are. It's just really, really amazing. So I'm, I'm, I'm blown away, really. And I know that your books are really popular and I hope more people go and read them. And I hope a lot of people tune into your podcast because it's just absolutely magnificent what you're doing there. So thank you so much for joining us, Kieran, on our podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's been an honour. And you know, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks, okay. Kieran. I've fulfilled a geeky dream now. <laughs> <laughs> No idea how long Emma's been going on about this. <laughs> anyway, look, thank you everyone listening to uh, Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma Turner. Thank you for joining us uh, every time you join in. We've got some more great guests coming up over the summer months, but uh, this has been our signing off. Thank you very much and see you soon. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.